Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated focused on cybersecurity at the 930 Gov Conference. My guests on that panel were Amy Hamilton, the visiting faculty chairperson of the National Defense University's College of Information and Cyberspace, Donald Coulter, the cybersecurity science advisor for the Office of Science and Technology in the Homeland Security Department, Monica Montgomery, the deputy chief information security officer and deputy director of the cybersecurity office at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Michelle Thomas, the chief technology officer for the state of Maryland, Jim Smid, the chief technology officer for the Defense Department and Intelligence Community Field for Palo Alto Networks, and Dr. Tina Rodrigue, the CISO at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. First, we hear from Amy Hamilton of NDU. I am with the Department of Energy, but detailed to the National Defense University College of Information and Cyberspace, which is pretty extraordinary. And I am very fortunate. My boss, Ann Duncan, uh, has really decided to invest in people. So as it was interesting. I uh, listened to Dr. Tina earlier, and she's talking about the lack of investment in people. So the Department of Energy made that decision, like, hey, we're going to give up a full-time person for three years to go and teach, because the most important thing that we can do right now is train our future cyber workforce so it's something that we're very focused on and it was interesting also in the prior discussion the the talk about don't you know we don't train the people on the latest technologies as uh, as they come out one of the things that we decided in our initial zero trust strategy at the department of energy uh, right after eo 14028 came out in our original plan when we only had 60 days to write it is we said we're going to invest in the people so we developed a training program and i'm happy to say that that has kicked off and what the department is doing is ensuring one person at every site in every cybersecurity program is trained on zero trust specifically. And that has been an enormous initiative that took a lot of effort because a lot of times we aren't investing in the people. People are like, let's get a tool. So to actually have those people out there trained is something that uh, we're finding very rewarding. So that's kind of the, the future of cyber workforce, I think, is really important. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing right now at um, NDUCIC is planning our next big cyber conference called Cyber Beacon. And one of the things that we did for that is for every single panel, we have one abstract that was generated by AI. Different AI tools were used, and the other was generated by a human. At the beginning of each panel, we're going to ask the audience and pull them and find out, do you think a human created this, or do you think AI generated this? And it's a super exciting concept because right now, you know, that is the future. We are living in an entirely different place than just two years ago, where if you would have read something AI generated, it would have been very apparent. And so we're moving quickly into the future. Another thing, and uh, Jason has heard me rant about this before, but I just think it's super important is when EO14028 came out, one of the things that happened right beforehand was Colonial Pipeline. And so those of you who remember the Colonial Pipeline incident and the draft of the EO, it was suddenly like, and operational technology matters and you should do everything for operational technology too, but we don't know how. So good luck. And so when you are dealing with cyber physical systems, things that actually do something or talk to something or touch something, it is very, very different than business systems. And so we right now have been examining 
determining through an interagency body. How do you start applying zero trust principles to operational technologies such as SCADA systems um, from the Department of Energy? We like the you know the grid to be up. Most people can agree that electricity is important, right? So when you're starting to look at those things, you're like, how can we do this? And then working with other agencies who you know are all kind of looking at those same critical things. So we're really hoping that this guide will come out soon um, in a public draft. Uh, we have been working very very hard through that. So, All right, my one quick follow-up, of course. I want to talk a little bit about the cyber workforce piece. It's one of those things that we talk a lot about, and it's a safe topic, which is nice. But I think what energy is doing is really interesting, saying one person at each site. What is that one person? Is it the 101 course? Is it the 400-level course? What's the baseline? What's the? How are you ensuring that if Amy's at Los Alamos and Tina's at Oak Ridge, they are at the same level and they have the same knowledge. So we wanted to go with the same lexicon. So what I will say is uh, we selected one vendor to go ahead and do this. They're considered one of the industry leaders in all of the uh, Zero Trust uh Many people say they are actually kind of the founders of Zero Trust, right? So we went ahead and uh, we decided that that was what we we're going to use as a standard. We also had them specifically tailor some of their knowledge base so that people can go ahead and access that as a Rolodex. What it has really done for the department, though, is give us a common lexicon. And that gives us also a common point for deviation. It's very interesting when you look at, is it the CISA Zero Trust model you're looking at? Is it the DOZ Zero Trust model? Is it the NIST Zero Trust model? Is it the Forrester Zero Trust model? Is it a different type of Zero Trust model? So you really have to just at the beginning say, okay, like which model are we talking about? And now where are we going for the next step? And then, like I said, when it comes to the whole part for operational technology, our department is one of the largest non-compliant departments, which is not something that you want to say. But part of this is we decided very, very openly to admit that we're counting all of our operational technology in this. And right now, it is not technically feasible or possible to secure some of this equipment using zero trust methodology. And we're really working that right now with industry, with our partners. And when you look at some of the legacy analog systems we have, um, somebody mentioned earlier, oh, like we have operating systems, it's going to take two years. When you're talking transponders, this is 20 or 30 years for these systems to be, you know, transferred out. So it's a very long, long journey. Don from uh, S&T. Donald, uh, tell us something we don't know. Thank you again. Interesting. So I approached this, uh, some of the work that we do, uh, since I'm not in a CIO or a CISO office, is that we look at longer term or harder time frame problems, and we look at them in a way that says, how can we make a broader impact across uh, a larger uh, segment of organization? And not to talk about DHS's mission so much, but part of our mission is to secure not only ourselves internally, but to secure the federal cyberspace and critical infrastructures and work with our partners to do that across state, local, tribal, and territorial partners. So our research and, and investigation into how do we increase cyber resiliency uh, incorporates perspectives of how to scale and focuses on how to scale across organizations. So even as we're looking at the proliferation of an, a variety of different technologies that continue to emerge and the threats associated with those technologies, we're also incorporating a, a specific focus on how do we, at a, at a high level scale across organizational boundaries with uh, privacy and confidentiality concerns that we don't want to um, 
lose the protection of the confidentiality and integrity in the, in the, uh, on one hand or for our sensitive data and systems, but also the integrity, availability, and safety, safety from um, our, our uh, operational technology systems. As, so one of the things that we're doing uh, and embarking on soon here as we lay out the federal cyber strategy for R&D, and as we start implementing some of the programs aligned to that, we're going to be looking at how do we improve zero trust capabilities and fundamental technologies that are beyond what the, the standard uh, commercial implementations are providing in the near term. That includes looking at how to expand contextual awareness in our and, and expand the data that's associated with all of in the metadata associated with all the systems and resources that we have and be able to communicate those across systems and system boundaries and organizational boundaries. And that also includes looking at a need to focus on standards. I actually had a recent conversation we were talking about where we're focused on like technology and the system engineering and development lifecycle and how we're developing that. But some of the risk happens when you think of from a supply chain perspective, a lot of that risk happens right there when people are creating standards. So we have to be at the table and looking at how are these standards coming together and how are we influencing them to make sure that we're approaching them and inserting um, our interests to make sure that we have the visibility and understanding to um, retain the resilience and understanding of what's going in these systems and help uh, the developers and the uh, consumers uh, understand what they're buying and what they're deploying. So. Part of that strategy includes the biggest buzzword of the day, AI. So we are looking at uh, AI and how we can use that to help us analyze some of the inherent uh, fragilities that are in some of these systems and how can we help us uh, identify mitigations and, and inform people. But some of that is also just looking at how do humans interact with each other and other systems to learn and take information from AI-based uh, cybersecurity recommendation systems and how do we speed up the response to some threats and how do we design, uh, that's an operational time space, but again, we look at that, how do we push that back and integrate AI into the design and development of these systems as well. So this is where our focus is both in traditional information uh, communication technologies but also across operational technologies as well. Don, I want to go back to what you said, improve federal cyber strategy for R&D, improve ZTA beyond kind of standard commercial implementation. Do you have an example yet what that may look like? Help us define that a little bit, even at the 100,000-foot level, beyond the standard commercialization is common implementation. Yeah, so commonly what we're doing is we're able to kind of, there's no one technology that allows us to, you could just buy it and deploy it and you've got zero trust, right? With, even within DHS, we have multiple organizations and components that are independently going off and trying to solve their own security problems and zero trust problems. So one of the things we're really focused on is how can we assess the, the integrity of these zero trust implementations independent of any specific commercial vendor's technology, and how do we do it at a kind of at a technology level, but how do we at a high level, but also how do we come up with standards that allow us to assess the integrity of like our trust algorithms inside of the PDPs and the policy decision points and the policy engines? How do we come up with a standard me uh, measure uh, for indicating the security there? So that's just one of the areas that we're looking into. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated focused on cybersecurity at the 930 Gov Conference. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated focused on cybersecurity at the 930 Gov Conference. My guests on that panel were Amy Hamilton, 
the visiting faculty chairperson of the National Defense University's College of Information and Cyberspace, Donald Coulter, the Cybersecurity Science Advisor for the Office of Science and Technology at the Homeland Security Department, Monica Montgomery, the Deputy Chief Information Security Officer and Deputy Director of the Cybersecurity Office at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Michelle Thomas, the Chief Technology Officer for the State of Maryland, Jim Smith, the Chief Technology Officer for the Defense Department and Intelligence Community Field for Palo Alto Networks, and Dr. Tina Rodrig, the CISO at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. For this segment, NGA's Monica Montgomery leads us off. We listened to the DOD, and when they came out with their seven pillars, which was different than the five pillars and, you know, everybody else, and then the IC, uh, the ICCIO and the ODNI were about a year behind, and when we were very concerned that they were going to do something a little bit different. Um, and so when they coalesced around DOD seven pillars, we were very thankful for that. But what it has given us the opportunity is to sit on a lot of working groups and see how all of the DOD elements and the IC elements are all kind of doing the same thing. They go back, they're looking, they're taking the the strategies and the capabilities and they're assessing their systems. At NGA, we have about 1,300 different systems. Some of those systems are large uh, MSAs, huge applications and systems. And then we have some GeoInt services applications in an app store. So the, the variety is very large there. And while we are going out and we are looking at all of those systems and figuring out how we can work with them That's a lot of overhead, and we don't have the people (laughs) to do that. And so what we've done that I think is unique within the IC and uh, the DOD is we are working towards our enterprise architecture, and we have created a solution epic to input into our uh, enterprise architecture. We have uh, seven... MVPs that are across those uh, functional MVPs across the seven different pillars, but that has broken down into 91 different zero trust activities and um, 170 enterprise requirements. Hmm. And so, as we as systems come through that you know business management system and they are producing those RFCs, each one of those is getting bounced across our solution epic. And so we don't have to go to all the programs. The programs are coming to us. And so that's given us a really a, a great opportunity to look at how we can take funding that we've received from OMB, from DNI, from DOD, um, and appropriately section that off and fund those. You know, we're, obviously we're focused on enterprise security services first and foremost, but that's not the totality of our enterprise. Um, And so we have to find ways to get to those smaller programs that are needing that funding, who can't afford to do it themselves. And so doing that through our our enterprise architecture and our solution epic, I think is is how we've, uh, unique to what we've, we've found. Anytime we can talk enterprise architecture, I do get excited, though there is a whole session of that, so don't get too excited, people. I can tell everyone is very excited about EA. But uh, I have one quick follow-up. You mentioned seven MVPs across the pillars. Are each of those minimal viable products a pilot, a, a test? A, like, how would you describe what those are? What we've tried to do is uh, we've taken the IC basic and DOD target activities and a, kind of done a crosswalk across, you know, through those seven pillars and 
identified which of our systems, not all of them, again, are enterprise security systems, but which of our systems can we use as kind of that MVP for that pillar? And then doing kind of rallying around that system and getting folks there. And that's really, I mean, in many ways, the most interesting thing about this move to zero trust that I've seen, and again, I'm not a cybersecurity professional in the least bit, but a lot of what was already going on in agencies can be used mm-hmm. to meet the goals of that OMB and, and the White House has laid out. So I think that's a, it's just a terrific example. So thank you. Uh, now for something totally different, Michelle, from <laughs> the state of Maryland. Uh, you are not under the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy, OMB, Memo 13180, whatever. We, we all lose track. But XXX, exactly. But most importantly... Uh, I imagine Zero Trust is important to you. So let's talk a little bit about the state of Maryland and tell us something we don't know. Pull that microphone close to you. Make it your friend. I just started as the the first chief technology officer for the state of Maryland. Um, So I'm still drinking from the fire hose. But interestingly enough, I have almost eight years of being a CISO at three different agencies. So I've walked the walk and talked the talk. I want to relay a thought or a comment to Tina, something she said about her research. I actually experienced that full bore where 77% of my cybersecurity budget was taken away for non-cybersecurity, non-IT purposes, and out of what was left, 33% was all that was allocated for cyber. The rest was for positions or things that had absolutely nothing to do with IT, much less cybersecurity. So I validate your research, <laughs> and, and I, I, I believe I'm not the only one. And, and your data backs that up, obviously. I think from a state perspective, the funding situation is very different. Every state has a different system of governing and budgeting. And in the state of Maryland, there's, it's, it's not really an exception. And I'll just give you an example. I'm still learning a lot about how the state of Maryland runs versus other states that I was aware of. And strangely enough, I am a citizen of Maryland. But in Maryland, the comptroller of the state, the equivalent of a CFO, if you will, is an elected official. And that politicizes certain things, just like any other elected official can. It's like the difference at the federal level between uh, a political appointee versus a career appointee in a particular position, whether it's CIO, CISO, or anything else. And so governing IT that way is, is new to me. It's very interesting. And... I don't see it as an obstacle. I see it, it, it's obviously a challenge, but it's not one that I haven't been able to meet. The states that I'm familiar with, Washington, Connecticut, Illinois, New York, Texas, Florida, they're not different than any other state, I think, at a high level. They all have cybersecurity programs. They all implement it at different levels. I'm not aware of any state that has stepped up and said, we have fully implemented zero trust and we're happy about it. No, I don't think that that's happened. What, what's, what is happening is when you have a state such as Maryland, it's not just about the state government. 
it's about all the state agencies. So you have a Department of Health. You have an education system that goes K through 12 plus universities. You have other services, that the child services, for example. And so it's, you know, a, a friend of mine is a teacher, and I mentioned zero trust, and somebody in the conversation said, well, what the crap is that? And I, I didn't say anything. And she said, oh, I know what it is. I teach fifth graders. There is no trust. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, that's an excellent metaphor. But it's thought of differently, and it has to be implemented and respected at every different level. I'm, I'm looking at what, we, what our challenges are in the state, and I don't think we're unique to any other state. But how do we implement something like zero trust in a health department versus a school system versus any other kind of system that we have? A tra- you know, you want to talk about industrial control systems, the MDOT, the, the Maryland Department of Transportation, right? They have the easy pass system that they're integrated with all on the East Coast and, and all sorts of other systems. And so how do you secure those How do you handle the security and the integration of radio services between all the different police jurisdictions and sheriff jurisdictions within the state, along with EMS, in all the different counties of the state? It's a huge challenge. And we have some solutions in play. We have a lot of thinking going on. The state just hired a new CIO, a new CISO, and a new CTO. And I'm, I'm kind of proud of the team that the governor's put together, but we're all kind of getting to know each other and, and getting to know how to work with each other. The, the, the government of the state and the governor have given us some indication of what their priorities are, more than an indication. But it's up to us to implement. One thing comes to mind, and maybe this would be helpful as you enter your new role and, and, and take a different perspective of how to implement cyber protections is there one big lesson that you're bringing with you from your time in the, in the federal government as you bring it to the state? A lot of f- former federal officials like yourself have moved into the state. I just came across somebody who was at SBA, was at the Comptroller of Currency, and now he's the acting director of IT in Illinois. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm seeing a lot of these this movement. What's the one? So what would be the one big lesson you're bringing with you? I haven't heard anybody mention communications, but I've heard them alluded to in various ways, and, and Tina was one of them. If you don't communicate and you don't use that communication as a means of collaboration, you're setting yourselves up for failure. I've seen it everywhere I've worked. And interestingly enough, out of the entire new executive suite at the state of Maryland, only one is not a former Fed. So, so you know, that holds true. And so the lessons that, that I think that we've learned about communication are very, very important. Zero trust is going to fail where communication doesn't happen. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated focused on cybersecurity at the 930 Gov Conference. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated focused on cybersecurity at the 930 Gov Conference. My guests on that panel were Amy Hamilton, the visiting faculty chairperson of the National Defense University's College of Information and Cyberspace, Donald Coulter, the cybersecurity science advisor for the Office of Science and Technology at the Homeland Security Department, Monica Montgomery, the deputy chief information security officer and deputy director of the cybersecurity office at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, 
Michelle Thomas, the Chief Technology Officer for the State of Maryland. Jim Smith, the Chief Technology Officer for the Defense Department and Intelligence Community Field for Palo Alto Networks. And Dr. Tina Rodrig, the CISO at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. For this segment, we hear first from Palo Alto Networks' Jim Smith. I really appreciate what everybody has said. I think that uh, my current role, I'm the field CTO for DOD, for Intel Communities, and for Fourth Estate for Palo Alto Networks. But I think that uh, my background, I've also done a lot of civilian, a lot of healthcare, and it's ubiquitous. The, the, the things that have been brought up by the panel, it's really with every customer I talk to. I'm in a unique position at Palo Alto because I talk to all of the customers. I don't have a, a patch. I don't have a particular person that I talk to. I'm talking to everybody. And these, these same issues that have been brought up, uh, whether it's the IoT and the OT part of it, you want a single platform that's going to be able to deliver zero trust across everything. Uh, whether it's talking about standards. One of the things that it sounds like Monica and I are both been living with this 91 activities, the 152 activities from the DOD. How do you address those? And I think it's part of it is to just recognize that there's standards and there's some ambiguity still in those 91 activities and how do you help the customers understand what they're trying to accomplish, what the realm of the possible is, where industry stands in terms of how we're evolving and, and maturing and terms of our capabilities. Uh, so that's all really important. I think this communication, the idea of communication is critical, right? You gotta learn from what the next guys are doing and be able to, uh, to deliver that in, in a unique way. And then how do you take some of the evolving standards, whether it's uh, things like quantum computing, whether it's things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, how do you start baking that into every product? And how do you leverage those kind of capabilities to deliver better cybersecurity uh, those kinds of things. So there's very ubiquitous uh, things that we're all trying to to deal with. Uh, I would say the three things that come up the most when I talk to customers, accelerate, consolidate, and integrate. And they're really very tightly, uh, in a, they're, they're tightly uh, bound around what your solution's going to be. And what we talk about is in order to accelerate and to get things done as quickly as you can, I think that word is used in one way, shape, or form probably several dozen times in the DOD roadmap, how do they get this done as quickly as possible? You're bringing platforms to bear. So instead of buying individual products, it's really important, I think, that you, you deliver, like your phone, you can just get an app, right? We, as an industry, a few years ago, were much more divided. There were a lot more tool sets out there. That consolidation is happening, and we're maturing as a cybersecurity industry. And for our customers to take advantage of that and, and make sure, first of all, what they have, what they can take advantage of today. You don't want to throw out the old. Let's find out what the gaps are. But then let's put in a platform that has the ability to turn on feature functionality, much like buying an app on your phone. Much more consolidated in terms of what the capabilities are, that realm of the possible from a cybersecurity platform today. The other thing I would say is uh, I usually try to take the, the seven pillars and uh, you know I really consolidate down to five and I say you have five pillars and you have two other pillars that have to be embedded in all those five in order for them to work, right? For zero trust to work, device, application, network, data, it all has to have automation orchestration. It all has to be able to communicate with the other tools. If you're going to get real artificial intelligence, machine learning, if you're going to be able to do actionable intelligence, if you're going to be able to respond to zero-day threats, at the end of the day, when all of our job is to, is to do really two things. It's to reduce the mean time to know that you have a problem 
and it's to reduce the mean time it takes to respond and resolve that problem. If you have individual tools that aren't integrated, they don't work together, uh, you don't have automation and orchestration, if it hasn't been standardized, if you're not using that across the board and so you can share those different kinds of devices and playbooks reporting, you're not going to be effectively able to deliver zero trust in your, in your enterprise. All right. Thank you for that. All right, we're going to go back to Tina. She got a little rest. She maybe, hopefully, maybe got a drink of water. But <laughs> Tina, Tina's going to tell us something we don't know. So we talked a lot about kind of cybersecurity at CFPP, but now we're going to talk maybe a little, a little zero trust action. Absolutely. Right. So one of the major pillars, application, we're expanding to include not just the supply chain risk of products we buy, but also open source software and the supply chain risks associated with that. Part of why we're doing that is because we do build a lot of software ourselves, and we have already seen that from the Log4j and everything else, that where, where vendors or open source communities include problems, we transitively inherit those problems. So part of what we're looking at is being our own product development team to make sure that security also is part of the ideation and that as part of that orchestration, that we have built in cybersecurity from the get-go because with our systems thinking approach, we recognize that we're all interconnected and that these things will emerge dynamically with much uh, less warning than before and often with no warning. So part of what we're doing are building those relationships so that there is cyber synthesis throughout the whole thing. And so that's the major emphasis we have around zero trust because with the, those applications tied into identity, tied into the network and devices, and the data itself, we're able to protect everything at the same time. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated focused on cybersecurity at the 930 Gov Conference. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated focused on cybersecurity at the 930 Gov Conference. My guests on that panel were Amy Hamilton, the visiting faculty chairperson of the National Defense University's College of Information and Cyberspace, Donald Coulter, the cybersecurity science advisor for the Office of Science and Technology at the Homeland Security Department, Monica Montgomery, the Deputy Chief Information Security Officer and Deputy Director of the Cybersecurity Office at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Michelle Thomas, the Chief Technology Officer for the State of Maryland, Jim Smith, the Chief Technology Officer for the Defense Department and Intelligence Community Field for Palo Alto Networks, and Dr. Tina Rodrig, the CISO at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. For this segment, the panelists take audience questions. Jeanette Cockrell uh, from CISA. So I have a general question, two questions. The first one, and you talked about people. What challenges have you met to keep your cyber experts in-house? The second question is, when you're doing acquisitions, what are you specifically putting into your acquisitions to ensure that the product that you're getting meets the standard or your expectations of the standard of security? All right, so let's do the first one first. Uh, workforce, how are you keeping the people, your good people, so they don't get away and so Jim doesn't steal them? Sorry, Jim, I'm going to blame you. From a people perspective, part of what we do is we uh, not only allow them to have training dollars, but we also create details and rotations throughout the entire bureau so that people within the cyber team or from other teams can come to cyber 
learn the information and be, go back to their original jobs and be advocates for cyber. It's part of what we're doing more broadly so that if someone is interested in cyber, they can come see what the reality is, is and that we within the cyber team generally work more hours and twice as hard as anybody else I've encountered. But the other part is that making sure that as we as we take things out that they're able to understand just the foundational elements to it. That if and we make sure that we train people strongly so that even if they do go somewhere else, leave CFPB and go to FDIC, they leave with a strong alumni association essentially where we can still work collaboratively across the lines. So we've never really lost anyone. They've just gone to new locations and they still send things back home. The other part I would say is with regard to contracts, we have a very strong standard cyber clause language. We recognize that FedRAMP and all of those other aspects require clear inclusion of local language in order to be effective and to include those parts that FedRAMP doesn't consider to include forensics, the necessary logging elements. And while they may focus on 853, there's a lot of standards we have to cover, so making sure they're all in there. Michelle? Yeah, I know from having been at DHS that, that they have a um, cyber recruiting program that includes a pay differential on top of the regular. So, and, and you know, Cissa, you're, you're, you're part of that. For my friends that work in the private sector, I see a lot of companies starting because of people talking with their feet, especially what with the pandemic, they're starting to realize that, that maybe salaries need to increase along with some of the things that, that Tina talked about. And I don't think that's any different at the, at the state level. One of the first jokes, uh, I didn't consider it a joke, but one of the first things I heard when I joined the state of Maryland government was, how you know people joke about how little they are paid um, at at the state level, and and I had heard that before from friends that work in in Washington, Illinois, and New York for the states, and it surprised me. I, I was a Fed for 27 years before I left and joined the state of Maryland, so I get it. I think that training is very important, but I also think that mentoring is very important. And I know that when I was at the Department of Labor, I led, I was one of, of the executives there that, that led a mentoring program, especially for people in the cybersecurity field. And the people that I mentored were very grateful because they had, they had never had, a, they had never experienced a mentoring program that focused on cybersecurity, that focused on, on things like you know, uh, emerging technologies and, and things like that in the IT field. And and so it, it, I learned as much as they learned from me. It was very rewarding both ways. But I think uh, people understanding more about themselves and why they are where they are, what they want out of their job, and, and the degree to which they believe in the mission, when you start relating the mission to what you're doing, it becomes a little more personal right? And, and sometimes that's all that people really want to stay. They want to know that somebody understands them and supports them. On the procurement side, having just come out of the federal sector, I found it very challenging in the last three agencies that I was at, that 
you know, is labor and, and transportation and DHS, that it's very hard in decentralized procurement shops, which all three agencies had, to get all the people to agree and communicate amongst each other that this is the standard clause for open source, this is the standard clause for FISMA compliance, this is the standard clause for, you know, whatever. And I saw so much deviation that resulted in contracts that were then very difficult to enforce from a contractual and a legal standpoint. So, you know, I don't know what it's going to take, but I didn't, I didn't see that overarching enterprise policy about this is the standard clause for this, this is the standard clause for that, so that we all get the same thing. Right now we're talking about supply chain management, or we were, right? And, and how do you ensure that you're not getting grayware, for example, and those kinds of things? If you don't have your contracts correctly written with the correct content that's enforceable at the federal and at the state level, it's very difficult to get anything out of it. So I'd like to address the uh, workforce issue, and I think retention internally is important, but I also think rotation is important. And if you look at the uh, recently released uh, strategy from the White House, I think it really highlights that point that we have to look at the digital economy, we have to look at the cybersecurity workforce holistically, we have to look at industry as our partners, and we have to look at you know, I think it was said very well here, this alumni, this network program, you know, when we look over at Michelle, you know, we should be thinking like, this is awesome. Now I have a contact in the state of Maryland. And she was saying how so many of the people over there in their C-suite came from the federal government. Uh, when you look at industry, it's the same thing. One of the things that the White House is looking at now is how can they make it easier for people to come in and out of industry? Because I think we're going to see that more and more. It is very difficult for um, governments, whether it's federal, state, local, to compete with salaries that people can get in the private sector. On the other hand, when people in the private sector, uh, sometimes they want to come back to the government. They want to give back. So we have to make it easier, and we have to recognize that just because you want to do something new, it doesn't mean that you're turning back on something old. You're just expanding. Don? Sure. Yeah, real quick, I just want to yeah, piggyback on the rotational aspect, right? We have a thriving rotation program where we uh, encourage and enable people from across DHS to come and work with our shop for six months to a year in doing uh, cybersecurity R&D programs. And this allows us, we take people either that have cybersecurity backgrounds, but we also take people that don't. And this gives them exposure, but it also proliferates uh, knowledge and awareness. So they can come learn more about cybersecurity and then go back to their jobs, even if they're not cybersecurity folks in their jobs, they now know like what issues they should be concerned about and who they can go to uh, to find out more information or to help them solve hard problems. So that's just one of the ways we also uh, work on workforce is not only bringing people in and keeping them there and doing cyber stuff, but also people expanding the knowledge of the general workforce population. We also have uh, extensive use of the Intergovernmental Personnel Act as well. So we bring in visiting professors and other uh, state uh, government officials as well to help us with our problems, go back to their organizations, go back to their schools, and continue to teach and, and generate the next uh, uh, generation of, of leaders in this, in this country. Yeah, so the uh, rotation stuff is super important. Uh, DHS IA's uh, CISO is a former NGA employee, right? So, <laughs> like, we, we definitely have that going for us. The one piece that I'd like to address that I think NGA is doing a little bit differently 
is that we are trying to make cyber everybody's job. It is no longer the 137 people who are considered cybersecurity. It's not their job. It is the totality of the agency. Wherever you sit, your job is cyber because of things like phishing and because of the, I think you had mentioned earlier, right, who you are and you might not realize the privileged accesses that you have. Everybody's job is cyber. Hi, my name is Kalpana from DHS as well. My challenge at work is like handling the legacy systems. I totally get it. Enterprise architectures, current architectures are easy to enforce zero trust versus the legacy systems. So what would be the best solution to handle the, uh, the legacy systems and how is it being handled currently? Like I said, we have uh, 1,300 systems and 1,297 of them I would consider to be legacy, right? And that's probably an underestimate. So one of the things that we've done internally is that we do have quarterly PMRs that pretty much every system owner has to come through, and, and they're collectively, you know, it's not like every single system comes through, but a portfolio management per se. They're coming through our quarterly PMRs, and they have to address certain cybersecurity questions. And they have to, we have a, a, a dashboard and a heat map, and we put that up there, and we go, what are you doing? Right? And this, part of my question earlier, right, was we kind of get into these arguments with these legacy systems who say, well, it's going to take us 24 years to get off of Red Hat 6. And I, you know, I kind of put my head down and I, I shed a tear. Um, and it is negotiation. You're 100% right. Right? Um, and we weigh into factors, well, you know, where is your system located and everything else. But what we've found in the last couple of years is, is putting all of our legacy systems through some sort of accountability and having to answer to a heat map does actually put a little bit of pressure on them to modernize, to put some, you know, uh, to get towards some of these activities. That's all the time we have for today. For this show, I played an excerpt of a panel I recently moderated focused on cybersecurity at the 930 Gov Conference. My guests on that panel were Amy Hamilton, the visiting faculty chairperson of the National Defense University's College of Information and Cyberspace, Donald Coulter, the Cybersecurity Science Advisor for the Office of Science and Technology at the Homeland Security Department. Monica Montgomery, the Deputy Chief Information Security Officer and Deputy Director of the Office of Cybersecurity at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Michelle Thomas, the Chief Technology Officer for the State of Maryland. Jim Smid, the Chief Technology Officer for the Defense Department and the Intelligence Community Field for Palo Alto Networks. And Dr. Tina Rodrig, the CISO at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 